0: So I really, really find these stories that are on the Bloomberg um, that drill down on what trade policy, trade wars, and tariffs mean for U.S. workers on the ground really, really important. And that includes a story that today looks at what tariffs by the Trump administration have meant for one steel town in Illinois. Writing that story, it's a, a dynamic duo. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News, he joins us in our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. And then right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio is Joe Doe. He's metals and mining reporter at Bloomberg news. These guys went on a road trip, Sean. Kick it off. Tell me where you tell us where you guys went and what you were looking at.
2: So we went to a place uh, called Granite City, Illinois. It's uh, right across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. It is uh, an emblem of what Donald Trump likes to talk about as his victories when it comes to trade policy. Uh, Granite City is home to an enormous U.S. steel plant that in one form or another has been there for more than 100 years. Uh, and it uh, had shut down in 2015. Uh, in 2018, after Donald Trump introduced steel tariffs of 25% on any imported steel, uh, the blast furnaces, there's two of them at Gran- City were refired, and there's now seventeen hundred people or so who are back at work there. It is a success story on the face of it for Donald Trump's trade policy. And what we set out to discover, and this came out of conversations Joe and I had been having about the steel tariffs and what was happening in the steel industry, was you know what what was happening on the ground. What, mm-hmm. what's the real story? And when you scratch the surface a little bit here, you discover that almost two years after these tariffs went into place. The steel mill is facing a lot of the same questions that it was uh, before it shut down in 2015. The real economics of an aging steel um, plant haven't changed. And that really casts a big shadow not only over the workers there, but over a whole community of people.
1: So Joe, come on in here. Tell us what's going on in the business that is reflected uh, in Granite City.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is,
3: so Sean and I had been talking about kind of what's the next steel trade story we can work on. And what we drilled down to in, was I essentially said, you know, Sean, we've, we've basically we've hit a reset button two years after the tariffs were implemented. And really what it is, is U.S. steel mills versus U.S. steel mills. Hmm. And we're really talking about integrated versus uh, mini mills. Granite City comes back online because it gets an injection of profit. Uh, the company is able to reopen it. They're able to bring it in at lower cost. Um, but they face now the same troubles in the future that technically all the integrated mills face, which is the mini mills that are all over the United States and produce at lower cost because the power is less. They can turn them on and off quickly and not have to do all this these restarts. This
0: is a story we've heard before, right? This is a story we've
3: heard before. And, yeah. and we're finally kind of bringing this all together. We've, we've had a couple of years for everything to play out, right? And when you talk to the steel executives... Prices are lower than they were a year and a half ago and they basically keep preaching the same thing. We got to be lower cost and we got to be competitive. U.S. Steel, whenever people ask me, well, what do you think about U.S. Steel and in the, in the steel trade, you know, tariffs? I try to tell them U.S. Steel is a company-specific story. And I think we really get to that here in this story that Sean and I wrote, which is pointing out that the company just made a $700 million investment in a mini mill. They are building another mini mill down in Alabama. This is... Andrew Carnegie's company that created integrated steel mills and is now going after many mills. It was as I said to somebody on the phone the other day. You know, the biggest change U.S. Steel is going through since Andrew Carnegie is what they are doing right now, and Granite City is competing against those very mills feel, that they're investing. I feel like
0: in. it's like when energy, like the big integrated oil companies, are looking at alternatives, right? To right. some extent, um, this is what they're doing. So, Sean, does it just is it a reminder that trade policy can just do so much?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, the reminder here is that trade policy doesn't change the underlying economics uh, that you get. Uh, you know, the, we get a mini deal between the U.S. and China. That doesn't change uh, the underlying economic relationship. It may not shift it very much. Uh, you get a USMCA, you look at the economic impact, and it's at the margins. There are, there are bigger things going on. There are bigger forces than trade policy. And yet, at the same time, trade policy can make a mess of it all in the meantime. I mean, one of the things is, you know, when we talk about the steel tariffs, we, we talk about uh, the, the benefits that you saw in a place like Granite City, which is reopened. Uh, what we often forget is that the higher prices that uh, Granite City was able to reopen on the back of are higher prices that were paid by steel consumers. And in many cases, they have many more employees than the steel mills that benefited from the higher prices. And there's a lot of folks out there who look at what we see now in the U.S. economy, and that's a manufacturing recession that's been right. developing this year, and say, well, you know what? Higher steel prices, that's a big input. That's part of the reason that some of these firms who have been paying higher higher costs, not just there, but for, on tariffs for uh, inputs from China, that that they're having problems. And all of this kind of comes back in in You know, there's a big feedback loop in the U.S. economy.
1: All right. So, Joe, wrap us up here in the last 45 seconds or so. Where are we, you know, given everything that's happened with trade talks, tariffs and whatnot? Give us the sense of the moment right now uh, in the steel industry. Companies are trying to produce uh, at
3: more efficient levels. They're trying to get their costs down. Um, They realize that the demand in the next year is probably not going to be great. So you can't really continue opening up more production because that's going to drive prices down, which is one of the things we're seeing now. And so I think the best answer to that is, who knows? Uh, It's not a great situation, and anybody in steel will tell you that. And also, people who are buying steel will tell us, it's great the Granite City opened back up, but at the end of the day, I'm still looking for the lowest price to ship yeah. up and down the Mississippi River, and they
1: might not be it in a year.
0: And you have to compete with the likes of China, right, where there's also so much non Nonstop. Pressure. Yeah, Exactly. Great story,
1: really good. I mean, just taking you right to where you need to go, literally and figuratively. And who doesn't want to take a road trip with these guys to Granite City, Illinois? That would I, be I a want to be invited blast. next time. Yeah, totally. No, left us to exactly. there guys, yeah. really. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter. He's in D.C. Joe Doe here with us in New York City.
2: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: We have mentioned this most read story on the Bloomberg. It's about Stanley Druckenmiller, well known to much of our audience. And if you don't know who he is, you should, because he's one of the world's most influential investors. Well, he caught up with our own Eric Schatzker. Recently, that story rolled out across all the Bloomberg platforms today. Eric's with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So what did Stan the man have to tell you?
4: Jason Stanley Druckenmiller, for those who don't know, was the greatest hedge fund manager of his generation. He hung up the high tops in 2010. He turned into a, converted if you like, his hedge fund into a family office. This guy was so fearless, he took on the Bank of England, shorting the pound in 1992, making a billion dollars for George Soros, whom he was chief investment officer for at the time. Gives you a sense of... The kind of aggressive huge bets that Druckenmiller put on in the course of his career now he describes himself as timid a coward even Why here's one snippet of the interview to give you an idea
2: this administration with wondering about where the hell the next bomb is coming from just doesn't allow me to take some of the positions I've taken historically where I just thought it was a one-way bet. To me, this was always binary and a two-way bet.
4: So the combination of the Trump presidency, a decade of monetary experimentation by central banks, and more and more competition from investors whom he never had to face at the height of his career, and I'm talking about quants, have sapped his courage. And he's very matter-of-fact about it. It's a very stark reminder of how much has changed in finance yeah. and why so many of the once all-powerful macro managers, the masters of the universe, Paul Tudor Jones, for example, Lewis Bacon, have been struggling in the post-crisis environment.
0: It's a reminder that things are indeed different this time around, in terms of the financial markets, things have changed dramatically over the last decade. It's harder
4: for these people, they're mostly men, to make money. Um, The things Stan talks about the fact that the signals, the price signals that he used to use to make decisions about what to buy, what to sell, what to go long, what to short, don't work anymore. He blames it largely on quants, and that's not an excuse. He says, look, the markets have changed structurally, And I'm a dinosaur. I need to adapt if I want to survive. Now, let's be clear. He's not having a terrible year. He's in double digits. He bet on Brexit effectively. He bought the pound. He bought British banks going into the UK election. And so Boris Johnson's victory was a victory for him and sent him over 10%. But this is 10 and something, let's call it, double digits, barely, in a year when the U.S. stock market is up 27% worldwide stocks are up 24%, high yield on a total return basis is up 17, investment grade is up 13, It just on a comparative basis it's just not that great. Yeah.
1: So, Eric, as you say and and as you've illustrated both in your description and we heard it a little bit in the tone in that snippet that you played, Tell us about how you read Stan. You know him. You followed him for a long time. Like, What was your read as as someone who's so smart about this market?
4: He wishes he could be doing better, for sure. He's still a competitive person, but he's not driven to take the kind of bets he once did, in part because he's no longer managing money for clients. Mm -hmm. He says, if I were... I probably would own more Mexican peso. I probably would own more Kiwi dollar. A couple of the other positions he has in addition to the Aussie dollar, the Canadian dollar, Japanese equities, stuff that's going to do well in a healthy to good global economy. He he sort of like I see he's kind of at peace with yeah. it. It's um now you can say Sure. It's easy to be at peace with that situation, Stan. You're a multi-billionaire. You have a great track record. You got out of the business at the right time right. saying you didn't believe that you could make the returns for investors that you once did. And sure enough, he hasn't been able to. So th- that's all well and good. But if if you are still trying to make money for your clients, like a Paul Tudor Jones, for example, um, good luck.
1: Well, because he really was among the first to sort of make that call in many ways, right? Yes, yes,
4: yes. And he's been followed by countless others, right? David Tepper, for example, Mm -hmm. Richard Perry, Eric Mindich. I mean, the list goes on and on. John Paulson of these once all-powerful masters of the universe who have decided that either because they've grown wealthy enough or because they just don't have it, have the mojo anymore, they either need to give money back to clients, some or all of it, And convert to a family office.
0: It's just, I love some of the reporting you've done. I think about um, the conversation you had with the PGM CEO, right? This whole idea of a zombie future, right? Like it's all, this is where- It's it's all part and parcel
4: of the same transformation that's taking place in financial markets. Now to give Stan some credit, he still makes some awfully good calls. Last year at this time, he was long treasuries because he felt as though the Fed was Overstepping and was going to have to cut back, and sure enough, starting in July, it did. Now right. he's short treasuries, thinking that they're going to
1: have to uh, they're going to have to cut. It's uh, excuse me, they're going to have to raise now yeah. that they've yeah. cut three times in a row. Great exactly. Stuff. Well, it's terrific, and no surprise, one of the most read stories. Great week for Eric Schatzker it's to not say the least. One of the
0: most read. It is the the most read. read. Sorry, nice superlative. In Matt Winkler is somewhere. is like yeah. yes. Let's be, be more <laughs>
1: specific. <laughs> yes. Specific, Eric Schatzker, Kelly. as Thank always. You. Thank you so much. Singing in a red
0: So I saw a report earlier, I think it was Reuters, they talked about unicorns like Uber, Lyft, and Slack. Disappointing in terms of the IPO market this year, but even so, U.S. venture capital firms giving birth to a record number of unicorns in 2019. So let's get some thoughts on the world of venture capital, what's in store for 2020. Lonnie Jaffe is back with us, Managing Director for Insight Venture Partners here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome back, happy almost new year. Thank you, great to be here. (laughs) So what, I mean, God, if you went back a year from now, Nobody probably would have predicted 2020 or 2019, excuse me, in terms of WeWork. Like everybody was looking forward to these big unicorns finally coming pub- public. Didn't actually play out, I think like we thought. So I don't know, what does that mean maybe potentially for 2020?
5: So it's interesting The the number of IPOs was down a little bit in 2019 versus the prior year, but the amount of capital raised was actually up and the software companies did pretty well. So the, the, uh, the companies like WeWork that were very high growth but where people had concern over corporate governance or viewed them as being potentially challenged from a unit economics perspective and maybe they were an investor-enabled services, right? Like the customers weren't paying for the product, the investors were paying for the product. Um, those were the ones that struggled the most. And I think you'll see some similarities going into next year where the companies that will... Um, that are more likely to try to come out, and the ones that will do the best will be the ones with really high gross margins, high degrees of recurring revenue, um, you know, really strong sources of economic power like uh, network effects, and, you know, multi-sided marketplaces, platform effects, machine learning, things like that.
1: And so you mentioned WeWork, the W word. Um, what's the lesson? What's the single lesson that you take going into 2020 that you feel like the market will learn?
5: I think 2020 will be the year of governance and privacy and uh, and diligence. So, um, you know, within our portfolio, we've been investing pretty heavily over many years in cybersecurity companies. This year, we've started to invest also in in privacy technology. For example, we invested in a company called OneTrust, which is one of the leaders in privacy software. Um, Related to that is, a, a focus on governance and uh, and safety. I mean, you see this even with a company like Airbnb, which right. which may either IPO next year or do a direct listing, um, where there's concern not just not not around things like corporate governance, but on safety of. Of the people who are the hosts or people who are the guests, and I think that's going to be a really important focus. Yeah, I think
0: about that. Is it the California regulation that goes into effect January one in terms of data privacy? I mean, this is a big deal. So I wonder, at Inside Partners, are you guys looking at this? And this is an, uh, you know, an area for investment opportunity.
5: Yeah, there's two dimensions to it. One is we're making sure that all of our existing portfolio companies have it front and center as one of their top priorities to be responsible stewards of data, especially the companies that leverage data to make their product better. And then second, it's a huge market opportunity. Opportunity because yeah. uh, you know, cybersecurity has gotten to the point where you can actually buy pretty good technology from vendors if you don't know how to do it yourself, if you're not Google or Facebook and you don't have really good internal security talent. For privacy, it's still the Wild West. And you know most companies are struggling to even really understand what they've collected, let alone secure it and make sure that it's being treated carefully.
1: So when we think about this year, one of the big themes, we've been talking a lot about this, sort of what are the big themes of 2019, it's this private versus public vis-a-vis valuations, vis-a-vis growth, vis-a-vis transparency, diligence, governance, all of those things that you just mentioned as well. Where do we go in, in 2020 in that private-public tension, as it were?
5: Yeah, I mean, the the companies that will go public, and the reasons to go public are you get increased transparency and uh, some additional liquidity, and you also see... Um, companies using their public liquidity to do acquisitions. Um, there's also lots of reasons to stay private. You have more flexibility with experimenting with your business model. Um, the kind of stuff that you um, you get from being an Insight partner's portfolio company, right? We have seventy full-time people at Insight who help with marketing sales, product ma- management, technology architecture. Um, it's very hard to get that from a public market investor. You know to the extent that public market investors are active at all, they tend to be focused on return of profits and not on responsible growth. Um, And so, so I think people will, and and there's a huge amount in software, there's a huge amount of capital available to stay private if you want to. So, so companies are only choosing to go public if it's useful for them.
1: And going public direct versus a more traditional IPO, how does that shift or change in
5: 2020? Yeah. And the, the, um, the main ingredient I think in that decision is whether the company needs to raise capital right and um, there but there are some other nuances like the lock-up period if you decide to do a direct listing can be shorter um, you have less con- less control over who your initial investors are going to be. Um, you have, uh, sometimes, you know, you can avoid situations like hedge funds shorting your stock going into a lockup period, um, but you don't necessarily have control over the pricing. You can't decide, I'm not going to, I don't like the price that it's ending up at, and so I'm going to actually withdraw and stay private for a little longer. So I-, I think the companies that will are most likely to do a direct listing if they do it are the ones like Airbnb that don't need capital. Mm-hmm. Brian Chesky said that he has more capital on hand than, uh, than he did, that he's raised so far as a company right. and that are household names because you, need, you really need to be able to have an investor base ready to go.
2: Lonnie,
0: what's, what do you think the future is of Twitter? Right, You guys were involved in this company in terms of investing in it, Um, and it's obviously a public company. And I think, you know, I feel like we in the media love it. It's up about 10% so far this year, but I just feel like there's kind of a love-hate. I don't
1: know if love.
5: (laughs) We
0: use it. (laughs) No, I like it a lot because I feel like when there's, especially when there's a story happening, it hits Twitter so fast and then you know, respected voices typically will weigh in on it. I really find it very useful. <laughs> I do love it. Um, but I do wonder, what do you think the future is? Because I feel like they struggle in terms of really making a lot of money.
5: Yeah, I mean, I would say for the, the social media product companies in general, they have a level of uh, of economic power that's um, pretty hard to find in other categories of company, right? So they're multi-sided marketplaces. They have demand-side economies of scale where their product improves as more people use them. Um, they, but they're getting a lot more attention from from regulat- regulators and politicians mm-hmm. and and the, and the media. And so I think that is going to put them in, increasingly in a place where they need to uh, focus on adding value to their users.
0: Well, if Twitter came to you, if there was entrepreneurs and the, the folks that started up came to you today and, and put this out and said, hey, would you invest in me? Would you?
5: We do take companies private at times, and th- the kinds of companies that are best suited to that are the ones where, um, where they, um, in, they're in the public markets and they have, um, they have a hunger for the kind of guidance and support that we can provide. Mm-hmm. So if they need help with acquisitions or scaling out internationally and, and those kinds of companies.
1: All right, last question, we got about 30 seconds left, but what's the one big idea that you think will catch on in 2020 as you sort of do your around the corner looking, broadly defined?
5: yeah we're we're actually making major investments in software that helps people produce more software hmm. more quickly. Um, and so our, our thesis there is that software is becoming an increasingly large part of pretty much every technology company. Yeah. And you see companies like Netflix are able to release software 7,000 times a day. And most grown-up companies are not able to do that. And so we've been making a, a, a company uh, companies like Armory, which we invested in recently, that have a product called Spinnaker, which allows you to release lots of software mm-hmm. to small por- parts of the world. And if it works, you can release it everywhere else. That That's be a big focus
0: interesting and i feel like blockchain or bitcoin it didn't even come up right and i think like a year <laughs> yeah, or so ago that's true. No. really uh, great insights uh, pun
1: intended thank you so much Lonnie <laughs> jaffe managing director at insight partners here with us in our bloomberg interactive broker studio
0: story of the magazine this week. It's about SoftBank, the vision fund, and the Japanese billionaire behind it all, Masayoshi-san. This story peels back the layers of it all. Sarah McBride wrote it. She's venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News. She is in our 960 studio in San Francisco. Right next to me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio is Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. This story, by the way, among the most read on the Bloomberg uh, today, um, I gotta say, Joel, I love this story, and I, we want to bring in Sarah in a moment. But I feel like we have talked so much about the Vision Fund, about SoftBank, and MASA this year, and rightfully so.
6: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's one of the stories of the year, and um, and the magazine, you know, like our, I think our coverage really made a mark back when we talked about WeWork, mm-hmm. and this was still when it was going to be IPOing. Um, And it quickly sort of went off the rails, and we know it's transpired since then. But I think one of the bigger stories, and obviously why we made it this week's cover, uh, is about SoftBank, right? That's where the money came from. Um, And when you have a $100 billion fund, it starts to sort of distort reality. So, Sarah, what did you guys find as you reported?
7: Oh, so much great stuff. And by the way, it was a huge team effort with reporters across the globe on this, not just me. But um, we learned some interesting things about, uh, for example, a couple of the partners there, including the very colorful guy and very smart and talented guy who leads the vision fund, Rashiv Misra. One of his deputies, Jeff Hausenbold, is very controversial. Even the CFO has a department that a lot of people have said is very difficult to work in, including one employee who was told, oh, go back to Utah and get some more wives. And because he was Mormon, he was very insulted and left the vision fund.
6: So, yeah, the, there's been sort of a, a cultural, cult, there's a culture side to this story that is uh, worth reading because it's there's a lot of different examples. And it, it really uh, goes to show the that even people on the inside say, like, there's... Some bad stuff that goes on here. Yeah. And sometimes it borders borderlines on on being reckless with their investments. Jason, what stood out to you?
1: You know, I was really taken by some of the inside stories and, and you guys have been alluding to it, but also this notion that we work, which you were mentioning earlier, Joel. And Sarah, come on in here. Really, was this kind of inflection point that we've seen as bold and as audacious as Massa has been? Well, and actually,
6: to be fair, you know, the the Vision uh, Bank portfolio, you know, the Vision Fund portfolio, it, you know, WeWork stands out. It's not the only thing that yeah. hasn't gone well, but there are other examples of their investments mm-hmm. working out. Yeah, Sarah, right. what what stood out to you on that front?
7: Well, um, the Vision Fund is known for its WeWork investment, but the Vision Fund's $100 billion. They committed about $4.4 billion to WeWork, so it's just a small percentage of their overall portfolio. They've got some very promising companies in there, especially in Asia. They've got one in South Korea called Kupang that's kind of a little bit like Amazon that's just growing like a weed. They've got a company called Tokopedia in Indonesia, a bunch of very promising ones, but the ones you hear about first are the blow-ups, and those often come early in the life of any fund.
0: But what's interesting too, and there is so much in this story, and you're right, it was a team effort, and I highly recommend that folks check it out in the magazine and online. But what was interesting too is, Sarah, you guys wrote about what set SoftBank and the Vision Fund apart, and that is, you know, you know Masayoshi-san, that when he made an investment, it was go big or go, go home, big. right? And so right. really pushed the startup entrepreneurs, to really expand aggressively. And he profited from that because valuations grew as a result. That's right. So he
7: would push people, and to his credit, to think of whole new business lines they hadn't thought of, or really, you think you can only be a $50 million company? I think you can be a $500 million company. He would just kind of encourage these startup founders to really think creatively about what they could do. And so um, that uh, sometimes worked out for them. And then other times when valuations got pushed up so high, then that was reflected perfectly legally right. on their accounting. And then sometimes the marked up valuations had to be marked back down again, even though they were never marked up as fully as um, in other places. Like WeWork was never marked up to $47 billion on their balance sheets but it still got marked up, which right. created problems.
1: All right, so Sarah, what does 2020 bring for SoftBank based on your well, reporting?
7: I think it can only be up from here. I um, hope some of their successes are kind of brought more to the fore for them next year, not WeWork. I,
6: and to me, I just think, it, you know, this is, um, the, the bigger story here is you ha- you come into VC like with this much money and it's gonna test the system. A little bit, right? And everything's gonna have to like react to it because it's so big, and it's only been around for three years. I mean, keep in mind here, and this is a big part of the story too. Vision Fund Two is what they're also out pitching, right? right? Which could be even bigger than Vision Fund One. So, all of this, we we get to see how it all plays out, and I'm sure it'll be interesting to cover. And a lot of the money
0: from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, So yeah.
1: it's another an interesting element influence, of it. to say the least. This is an outsized story in terms of its impact and the depth of reporting. Congratulations to Sarah McBride and the team. She joins us from San Francisco. Joel Weber here with us in New York City.
0: I'm driving in my car.
1: I turn on the radio. Hey, How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive
4: you home?
1: All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Now back with us via phone, Craig Hodges, CEO and Portfolio Manager of Hodges Funds. He oversees about $2 billion down there in the Big D, Dallas, Texas. That's where he joins us. Great to have you back with us, Craig. Hey, uh, glad to be on. All right, so we're wrapping up the year. We're headed toward Christmas. How do you feel about 2019 now that all is almost all said and done?
8: (laughs) Uh, 2019 has been a remarkable year in that I've never seen the market continue to do well in the face of pessimism, in the face of you know the political environment that we've had. Just You, you think about all the issues that happened over the year, and the market has been incredibly resilient. And uh, it tells you that there's a lot of money on the sidelines, and there's a lot of people that have not participated in this advance, and that, that's what's keeping it
0: up. What makes you so sure that there's still a lot of money on the sidelines?
8: Uh, you can look at the statistics. Uh, unbelievably, this year, investors have pulled $220 billion out of stock mutual funds this year. That's, but there's been an $85 billion in, uh, inflow into ETFs, so net 135. But there's been $277 billion inflow into bonds this mm-hmm. year, U.S. bonds, and 482 billion into money market funds. That's this year. That's an 11-year high. So, <laughs> used to, or you know, every market sell-off and every bull market at the end of a bull market, there's euphoria, optimism, people climbing over each other to get into the market, and that is the total opposite of what we're seeing. So it's it's remarkable.
1: And so Craig as you look ahead to 2020 where is uh, some opportunities uh, let's talk about some sectors or some names that you like
8: Yeah you know it, here at the Hodges funds and and uh you know in our separately managed accounts um we really see the opportunities in the market are, are the, it, the the parts of the market that have been forgotten uh you know the beat some of the beaten down names uh, there's a lot of beaten down uh, consumer names there's a a lot of uh, housing-related stocks that have done okay, but not near to the uh, effect you think is as good as housing is doing now. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, material companies. And then energy. Energy, you know, is very controversial, and it's less than, you know, less than 5% of the S&P now, so no one really cares about it. But it's been, a, it's been the worst-performing sector for two years in a row, and that, is, that never happens either. So we think that's where the opportunities are in the market
0: do you have specific names that you like um craig within the, in yeah. the energy space yeah
8: yeah in the in the energy space there's several uh matador resources a small cap best management team and in, in ent i like concho um you know a lot of names like that uh the the one other stock that I I would recommend that's 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 had a terrible year is Cleveland Cliffs. It's the uh, iron ore producer. Mm-hmm. Stock down from about eleven into the eight dollar range. But they just they just acquired AK Steel. Um, but that, that they've, they've invested in, in their business for about the last three years, and those are finally starting to pay off. You're going to see great ca- free cash flow in that company. Um, the company is very, very well run. And, you know, iron ore is, is essential for, you know, all the things that, you know, all the building that we're going to need to do in this country infrastructure-wise. So, um, I think Cleveland Cliffs uh, is a very good opportunity, and in, the, in that housing area, our favorite buy is Century Communities. It's an entry-level home builder. Stock's corrected about 25 percent here, just in the last month or so. A big disconnect there, but uh, they're in they're in the hottest markets: uh, Colorado, Texas,
1: uh, Nevada, Georgia. Right, you know some of those. So. So, Craig, uh, talk to me about semiconductors, because you are just, I'm guessing, down the road uh, from Texas Instruments, obviously a big name there. We're going to hear from Micron after Mm -hmm. the close of trading in just a few minutes, actually. What do you make of the chip space right now? You know, it's 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 it recently it's done very very well, and there's been a lot of skepticism, I and mean, a lot of people think that uh,
8: you know the cycle, you know, we were kind of near a bottom. Yeah. But it 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 looks like things are improving there. I think that's that's I think most of the prices tell you that it's going to, or you know, that we kind of the worst is behind it. But there, there hasn't been a whole lot of optimism there, but, but we like Micron, we like uh, NXP, uh, Tower Semiconductor are some names that, that we think uh, are, are situated in the right parts of the, of the semiconductor business.
0: So it's interesting too, um, I, I'm curious, have you been putting a lot of new money to work or are you waiting for a better entry point considering the bump up that we've seen, uh, whether it's big caps uh, or small caps?
8: Yes. Um, you know, we just don't fly in with both feet when when money shows up. We're yeah. looking for we're trying to be opportunistic. And you know, even though I am bullish and I think the market will do well next year, we will have sell-offs and those some of those sell-offs will be will be upsetting. But when the Fed's on the sideline like they are and they're saying they're not going to raise rates until inflation you know, becomes a problem, we're a long way from that. So mm-hmm. the Fed's on our side for the, for the future, and I would just be opportunistic. When, when the good companies go on sale, you know, go in there and buy them. I'd, I wouldn't be jumping in with both feet here, like I said, but just be opportunistic.
1: And when you think about the Fed, did you feel like the Fed was on your side all year or is that a relatively new phenomenon, Craig?
8: Well, just seeing the Fed, you know, a year ago what they were doing were <laughs> they were raising rates and then
1: they were not totally, on your side. They were not no, no, on anybody's were. side it feels like yeah. a year ago.
8: And that's why there was that 20 percent <laughs> decline right at year end. But you know, it's and it's taken some while to, uh, for people to get more comfortable. But you know, the the last statements by the Fed were is that, you know, they're they're going to sit on the sidelines and not do anything until inflation becomes a problem. And let me tell you, we're a long way from that.
0: uh, i I got to ask you about your blue chip fund. Um, And this is names like Apple, Microsoft, Boeing. mm -hmm. I am curious about Boeing, uh, only up about 2.6%. We all know the story behind Boeing. In fact, there's a great story in right through um, in the magazine this week that's hitting newsstands tomorrow. But what's interesting is I'm curious as – shares of Boeing have been under pressure. I think it's like your number three, one of your top, you know, holdings mm-hmm. in that blue chip fund. Have you been adding to the position? Just got about 30 seconds here.
8: Uh, we haven't, but we will add to it. Let, let's be honest, they, they have their problems. And, you know, this, uh, at the first month of the, of the year, it was the number one uh, stock acting in the whole market. And then we had those disasters happen, which were terrible. But let's not forget It is a duopoly. They're the only business in town. They're the greatest manufacturer probably in the world. So don't count Boeing out yet.
5: Hmm.
1: All right. Well, interesting. We'll be watching that one for sure as we get into 2020. Always great to catch up with you. Craig Hodges, CEO and Portfolio Manager for the Hodges Funds, Looking after about $2 billion down there in Dallas, Texas, as they say down south. Come see us. Uh, Always good to catch up with you.